All right, well, if you open your Bibles, uh, we are looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're actually going to finish chapter 2 this morning, but uh, finishing chapter 2 doesn't complete our section on uh, sanctified sojourning and suffering or a submission. Uh, this will actually take us all the way through chapter 3, verse 12, but we will finish chapter 2 this morning. Uh, if you recall, last week we covered verses 18 through 20 as we looked at uh, what it meant to, to suffer unjustly, to suffer under human masters. And so let me read verses 18 through 20, then I'll continue through 25, uh, because 21 through 25 uh, directly connects to 18 through 20 as we look at this next section being the motivation and the example, the pattern uh, for us to follow when we find ourselves in situations of suffering and submission. Verse 18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin or, or harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And so just by way of a very brief review, last week we said that there were situations where Peter's brethren, Christians, they would find themselves uh, under the authority of masters. And uh, Peter was very specific. He used a term that, that uh, described a house servant. We might say like a domestic servant today. Uh, this wouldn't have been a reference to the, the, um, uh, the slave trade that we see throughout history where people are, are taken from their land and put into uh, forced servitude and abused. Uh, this was more of paying off a debt that you had and this would have been in a, a home of a person who was your master. Uh, and so it still is a situation of a master and a servant, uh, a submissive role. Uh, and some masters we see uh, were good masters. They were fair masters. They were gentle masters. Others were unreasonable, uh, very harsh. And uh, Peter said that you need to be submissive to them. And he didn't give any exemptions. You need to be submissive to your masters. And uh, so that, as we studied last week, we saw, well, if you are uh, under the authority of a good master, that would be pretty easy to, to receive. Well, yes, I, I, I appreciate my master. They treat me well. Uh, I'm like one of the family, or maybe not one of the family, but I'm not mistreated. I have all my provisions met, and, and uh, it's not bad, even though I would enjoy having freedom. Uh, and then, of course, you have others who were being abused, who were being treated unfairly, and uh, Peter says, in either situation, you need to be submissive uh, with all respect uh, to them because in the end, uh, your conscience will be clear before the Lord. You know that what you do, you do in the presence of God, and at the end of the day, you can say, whether they treated me justly or unjustly, I responded in a way that glorifies God, and so your conscience is clear. Uh, now, when we talk about suffering, and, and I think this is uh, obviously looking more at the unjust suffering. No one's really putting up an argument against uh, being a slave of a good master. You probably have very few situations where there would be unjust treatment. Uh, so this is really focused more on the treatment uh, where they are enduring suffering uh, unjustly. And, and so in verses 21 through 25, Peter presents uh, an example to follow. He gives the believer uh, the reason why they suffer and, and a pattern to look at, an example to say, here is one who suffered and they suffered well. And so if I follow their pattern, follow their lead, walk in their footsteps, then I too will know how to suffer well. And so this is what we learned this morning. Verse 21 says, for you have been called for this purpose 
since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit uh, found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And so as we look at this exhortation to believers to be submissive to their masters, whether they are good or bad, uh, that certainly would have been troubling for some to hear and to accept. Uh, and so in addition to this exhortation, uh, it seems here that Peter is anticipating that kind of knee-jerk reaction and, and wondering why this would be the case for both. And, and he presents this assurance that this is exactly what God wants you to do. This is God's will for you. This is why you have been called, one of the reasons for our calling. And there is an example for you to look at, for you to see, for you to follow. Uh, and so Peter is presenting reasons why the Christian should not be surprised by suffering. Uh, every Christian that uh, finds himself or herself in the situation uh, of suffering is walking in the footsteps of Christ. If we study the life of Jesus Christ, we understand, and, and especially as we focus on his public ministry, those three to three and a half years in his adult life where he is uh, really actively fulfilling that, that uh, mission of Messiah, we see that, that uh, over and over and over again he is attacked. He is attacked verbally. There are those who want to attack him physically. Ultimately, they take him and they beat him and they nail him to a cross. And so his life is marked by suffering. But that suffering is not just suffering, it's unjust. And uh, when we look at how he responded and why he had that mentality, that helps us to understand our situations of suffering. So as we look at verses 21 through 25 this morning, we'll first look at the purpose in Christian suffering. That's going to be verse 21. Okay, the purpose of Christian suffering, and then the pattern of Christ's suffering. And that's verse 22 through 24. And then we will see, uh, finally in 25, the purpose of Christ's suffering. So we have a purpose as Christians. Christ had a purpose in his suffering as well. And so that's the way we'll break down these verses this morning. Let's look at verse 21 as we look at the purpose in Christian suffering. Again, Peter says, You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And so Peter is once again reminding his brethren, reminding Christians that we were called by God. And, and the calling of God, uh, there are various callings that we see throughout Scripture. We have all been called by God. When I say we, we're talking about Christians. We have all been called by God out of darkness and into light. And so Peter has already made that very clear, that we used to dwell in darkness. We used to be uh, children of wrath, even as the rest, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we used to belong to the power of the prince of the air, that is Satan, uh, that we had no hope, that there was nothing that we can do to break our pattern of sin or earn favor with God. But God called us out of that. He called us out of that sin, out of that darkness, out of that life of, of uh, condemnation, uh, by him because we have violated his law and he brought us into the light of his mercy and his grace and his love through his son Jesus Christ and so we understand that already and we would say yes and amen to that we would say well praise God that he called me out of sin praise God that he saved me 
Praise God that he has forgiven me and, and, and uh, adopted me as his own and promised an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled, reserved in heaven for me. Yes and amen to that calling. But here Peter is saying you've also been called to suffer. That's a little bit uh, more difficult to accept. That, that pill is a little hard to swallow. You have been called not just to be saved, but you've also been called to suffer. And he says, for, uh, you've been called for this purpose. And then he, he presents Christ. He says, since Christ also suffered for you. So as we look at this, Peter is saying, your Savior, your Messiah, your Lord, your Master, he suffered for you. The reason why you've been called, the reason why you have salvation, the reason why you are right with God is because Jesus Christ suffered for you. That was one of his purposes as Messiah. And so being a child of God, being a new creation in Christ, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, then the student has to be like the master. The disciple is like the Lord. And if they mocked him, if they punished him, if they opposed him, they will do so to you. If he endured suffering, well, then don't be surprised that you will endure suffering because of your connection with Christ, because of who you are in Christ. And so suffering is part of our calling as Christians in this world. And so, as I said, we are called to a number of things. Uh, we often think of the, the salvific calling, of calling to salvation. But there, this is part of our sanctified calling, that as we suffer, it does uh, continue that growth process of our sanctification. It helps us to become refined and, and holy and separate, set apart for God to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And so it really is something that is beneficial to us. It's a good testimony to others, and it brings glory to God as we go through these times of suffering and we follow the pattern that Christ left behind. Uh, and so as we, we look at this purpose, uh, as Peter is, is uh, telling his brethren that your sanctification, your calling, at times it includes suffering. Okay? And when we talk about Christ being the one who has gone before us, uh, that is something that we have to look at and say, well, his suffering is quite different than ours. Okay? We suffer for the name of Christ, but we don't suffer exactly in the same way as did Christ. Go back to verse 20 of chapter 2. We see here that there were some Christians who were suffering. They were treated harshly. But if you recall, they brought that upon themselves. Okay, verse 20 says, For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? And so Peter is saying, what, what reward do you think you're going to receive? Do you think someone's going to, to give a good word to you, say something kind about you, a pat on the shoulder, because you're receiving the consequences of your sinful actions? The answer is, of course not. You can't expect to be rewarded you know, for that. The Lord's not pleased with that. If anything, that would bring shame to the name of the Lord because we profess Christ. And then we commit sin, and then when we are caught, then we are harshly treated, and we patiently endure it. We can't say, oh, I'm, in, I, you know, I, I'm suffering for Christ. Well, no, no, you're not. You're suffering because of your own sin. When we come back to Christ's suffering, though, Christ's suffering was never a justified suffering, meaning that he did nothing in order to deserve the punishment he received. He did nothing in his words, his deeds, his actions, to, reserve, uh, to deserve the kind of abuse that was hurled at him. And so his suffering, it is similar, but it is so much different. But we still have to look at him as the pattern and understand that his suffering was necessary for salvation, even though he himself never committed a sin. That if we, if we are, are 
excited and happy and blessed to, to know that we are saved, understand Christ had to go to the cross. That's why when Peter was trying to, to persuade Christ to, to not go down that path, Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. He says, I can't avoid the cross. In the garden when, when Christ is there in agony and he says, if there's some other way, you know, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. And we'll touch on that a little more in a bit. So there were various times when, when Christ was, was tempted or someone was trying to persuade him to avoid the cross. But he understood that that was part of his messianic mission. Without the suffering, there would be no salvation. And so Christ, um, his suffering had a very great purpose. And again, we'll touch on that a little more as we come to verse 25. But his suffering was for the benefit of others. And here specifically, Peter's talking about the elect, those who would be saved, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so, uh, as Jesus, uh, knowing that Jesus suffered on our behalf, knowing that Jesus suffered unjustly, knowing that Jesus' uh, suffering resulted in our salvation, those should all be motivating factors for Christians to say, well, if, if Jesus suffered and we look at what it accomplished, well, then God must have a purpose for our suffering and we must follow in the footsteps of our Savior. I probably won't like it. I won't be comfortable. Uh, I would rather avoid it if at all possible, but if it's good enough for my Savior, it's certainly good enough for me. And if I am to suffer for the name of Christ, well, that is actually an honor to have that put upon me. And so this is how Peter begins his closing section of chapter 2. You have been called for this purpose. Christ suffered, you also must suffer. And he left an example or a pattern for you to follow. So let's take a look at that in verses 22 through 24 as we look at the pattern of Christ's suffering. Uh, again, the greatest example that we have in life is Jesus Christ. Uh, there are, I'm sure, many examples uh, that you can point to in your life of how somebody uh, influenced you, how they were uh, a positive um, role model, whatever it might be, to help you to learn and grow and progress and succeed in life. But Christ is by far the greatest example in all areas of life. And, and suffering is no different. And so when we look here at chapter 2, verse 21, uh, and 22, uh, Peter leaves this example for us to, to ponder, to consider, that Christ is the one who left his pattern, his example for us. Now, when you're reading this section of 1 Peter, uh, Peter doesn't say, as Isaiah said, but it's very clear that Isaiah 53 is a huge influence when you're looking at this section of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. When you read Isaiah 53, which is known as the chapter on the suffering servant, there are so many verses in Isaiah 53 that, that Peter is clearly thinking of. He's referencing Isaiah 53. Uh, and as we look at the Old Testament prophecy of the coming Messiah who would be the suffering servant, and we look at the New Testament statements by Peter who says Christ was the greatest example of suffering, we see the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they merge together beautifully. And, and so Peter is saying Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the one that the prophet spoke of, and he is the greatest example for us to follow. And so as we look at that, uh, we have to keep that in mind. And we'll go back and forth between 1 Peter 2 and Isaiah 53. Uh, now think about this. If we're talking about Isaiah, 
uh, Isaiah 53, hundreds and hundreds of years before the incarnation of Christ, that meant that it was already determined, it has already been declared that Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. There was no way around it. And, and Christ being omniscient, Christ being God, knew fully, he was fully aware of the fact that when he came to this earth, it was going to be difficult. It was going to be more difficult uh, and more challenging and more abusive than any human could ever endure. And yet he understood that and took it upon himself and came into the world that he created in order to save sinners. And so this suffering that Christ experienced, it did not surprise Christ. It didn't catch the Godhead off guard. They weren't looking at this saying, wow, this is really a wrench in our system. We weren't expecting that. You know, that, that has really thrown us for a loop. No, they knew exactly what was coming. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus came willingly and uh, obediently to, to fulfill the Father's plan of salvation. And so we understand when we're looking at Isaiah 53, whether it's prior to the incarnation of Christ or 1 Peter 2, after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, Christ always understood his mission. Now, being human, uh, knowing that he was the God-man, there were times when his humanity was tested greatly. And I mentioned that he was in the garden. And remember, in the garden, as he was there in agony and, and contemplating what was coming, he said, and this is Luke chapter 22, verse 42, you know, remove this cup from me. If at all possible, remove this cup. I would rather not go through it. If there's some other way to accomplish the plan of salvation, then, you know, that would be wonderful if I don't have to go to the cross. But at the same time, and almost with the same breath, we see that he, he counters his, his earthly desires, his human uh, desire to perhaps avoid the cross, and if there's another way that would still bring glory to God and accomplish salvation, but he understood this, and this is something that we need to look at as we look at his example. Yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, Christ's life was a life of obedience, and it was a life of submission, and, and it's a pattern that we should follow. Obeying the Father, and sometimes obeying the Father means being in situations of submission that are difficult for us to endure. And so as we look at his pattern, we see that. Now, this idea of, of Christ leaving us a pattern to follow uh, the, the, the Greek word there, it actually is describing, imagine, if you will, a, a kind of a classroom setting. Uh, for us today, back then, it would have been a, a young child with uh, someone instructing them. And uh, what you're looking at is uh, they were given a, 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 a writing to copy, perhaps letters of the alphabet. Uh, we have seen some of those handout sheets where kids are tracing the letters and then they make them themselves. They're patterning that. Sometimes it's a trace where you have uh, a piece of paper and you place something thin over it that's transparent and then you are learning as you follow the pattern. That's the idea here. You have a younger, uh, a less experienced, less knowledgeable uh, person, a child who is following the example given, that copy uh, of the letters. And to a beginner, it's aiding them in, in learning how to draw, to write. And so what we see here is that is the idea of Christ leaving the example. It's almost as if we can look at, at, at Scripture. I was going to take this, but Scripture is here. Let's use that. And, and say, here is the example. And, and if we were to take the example of Christ's life, uh, of his, his suffering specifically, and we take our lives, our situations, and say, let's place it here, what did Christ do? And let's follow this. 
we can see his example through our lives coming through, and then we can say, here is what we must do. Here is how we respond. That's the idea here behind following the example of Christ. Uh, and so Peter says that we as Christians were given a very detailed pattern of what sanctified submission looks like. And every Christian is to obey God and bring honor and glory to him as we strive to endure patiently the unjust suffering that will come our way. Uh, and so as we look at this pattern of Christ's suffering, uh, we're going to see four aspects of that, okay? four different aspects. In verse 22, we'll see his sinless suffering. Uh, and then we will see his silent suffering. And then his submissive suffering and then his substitutionary suffering. Okay, so this is all under the pattern of Christ's suffering. His sinless, silent, submissive, and substitutionary suffering. When we look at sinless, look at verse 22. Peter says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and look at verse 9 and, and see how clearly um, this passage in Isaiah uh, connects to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 22, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Peter clearly had the prophet's words in mind. And so Peter is saying, Jesus, he suffered. And when he suffered, all that he experienced, all that he endured was unjust. Why? Because he committed no sin. And, and, and while Peter is talking about the death of Christ, we can certainly point to numerous passages and say Jesus was without sin. That, that he is our great high priest. He was tempted in every way as we are as humans, yet without sin. And so we understand his incarnation, the virgin birth, he had no sin ever in his account. Again, in thoughts, in words, in deeds, never committing a sin. And while he was here uh, suffering from his arrest, his betrayal, his trial, his beatings, his crucifixion, he didn't commit sin or deceit. Nothing was found in him that was sinful in his thoughts or in his words. As they were attacking him, he didn't lash out at them. And so here we understand that, that uh, Jesus was suffering unjustly. Take a look at um, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, verses 40 and 41. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, we understand that there were two others who were crucified with him that day. Uh, one of them was insulting Christ, and the other one understood that Christ was sinless. Look at verse 40 and 41 of chapter 23. The other answered and said, well, actually look at verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there were, was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, meaning rebuking the other criminal, said, do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So even here you have a criminal on the cross who understands what Peter says in chapter 2. I committed crimes, I'm being crucified, why? Because it's the penalty for my sin. But this man has done nothing. We're up here, we're being humiliated, we're being shamed, we're being persecuted, we're going to die, but that's because we did something to deserve it. This man has done nothing. This man is sinless. 
And then we see here that uh, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And so we see here that this man's faith in Christ resulted in salvation. It was a saving faith. He understood that Christ was the sinless Messiah. And so as we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, we understand that, that some Christians will suffer unjustly, but Christ never suffered anything unjustly or unjustly it was always unjust so we receive both the unjust and the just for christ it was only the unjust suffering and so when we find ourselves in situations under the authority of these these um, unreasonable masters going back to chapter 2 verse 18 when we find ourselves in situations where we're being treated unfairly if we're talking about our day and age uh, none of us are, are house slaves, but uh, we have uh, people who are in authority over us. And, and we can look, and sometimes that authority is abused. Sometimes it's misused. Sometimes it's hurled upon us. And we look at that and say, that was, what did I do to deserve that? Where did that come from? Why are you treating me like that? Well, the Bible says that we are to understand that when we are in those situations, we are to suffer well. We are to submit we are to, to do all that we can to make sure that we don't sin. Uh, and we remember the example of Christ who suffered unjustly. Now let me just say something here. This doesn't mean that you can't speak up, that you can't speak against an injustice, but you want to make sure that you're not committing sin. You don't want to be sinful as those who are uh, treating you unjustly. And so uh, this is not to say that you have to be silent in every situation, that you can't say a word, that you can't go talk to the owner or the company or the, the supervisors or whatever it might be, you know, a professor at school or the administrators. It's not saying that you can't, you know, speak up and bring an injustice to someone's attention. What it's saying, though, is we don't commit sin. And when we find ourselves in those situations, we, we, we accept it to, you know, the, the point that it should be accepted obviously never committing sin ourselves and as long as they're not asking us to sin then we need to submit now if they're asking us the authorities ask us to do something that is clearly going to violate god's word well then we must refuse uh, and then we suffer the consequences of their um, anger with us or frustration whatever it may be look at verse uh, 23 as we took at the first portion of this, the silent suffering. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. Uh, go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. And so here we see the silence in Christ's suffering. And so the idea here of, of silence is that uh, not that he never uh, made a noise or uttered a word. We know that there were times when he was speaking, he was having conversations, he was responding to those who were accusing him, trying him, who were on the cross with him. But what we see here is that as they were lashing out at Christ, as they were reviling him, as they were, were um, um, throwing insults upon him, blaspheming, we understand that he did not return that insult. He didn't retaliate with his words. That's the idea of him remaining silent. And, and so for those who were attacking him, 
in every wicked way that they did, Jesus Christ remained silent. He didn't lash out verbally against them. And uh, that is something that we will do often uh, as human beings, often as Christians. Uh, when somebody says something to us, we often feel the need to respond quickly with words to counter what they're saying. Uh, and so we often will find ourselves in situations of committing sin with what we say in anger or uh, inappropriate things. Uh, here we have to look at Christ and understand that uh, his, his silent suffering was part of his messianic mission. He said nothing that would, would uh, keep him from the cross. He said nothing that would uh, um, destroy his sinless state uh, as the perfect son of God. And, and so he was silent in his suffering. And so any, any protest that we would have seen by Christ, uh, it, it's, you know, of course we know when we talk about the nature of Christ, we talk about the, the impeccability of Christ, that he would not sin. It was impossible for him to sin. But, uh, you know, we could say... You know, if we would have seen in Christ this protest where he was angrily protesting what was going on, we say, well, then that would have destroyed his mission as Messiah. And, and there are those who believe that Christ could have sinned, and that's a discussion for a later time. Uh, I don't believe that he could have. I think that his humanity was completely fortified by his deity, and any temptation, uh, and anything that would have would have been thrust upon his humanity, it would have been fortified in such a way by his deity that he wouldn't have caved in to sin. And it was impossible because the, the humanity and deity were, were fused together, if you will, um, in, in what we call that, that hypostatic union, the, the joining of Christ, uh, human and his divine nature. Uh, but when we look here, we don't see a protest by Christ uh, because he was a willing sacrifice. He was a willing substitute. Go back to Isaiah 53 and look at verse 10. Isaiah 53:10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Okay, so we see here, he offered himself. Jesus willingly came into the earth. He, he was willing to come down in what we call the incarnation. He was willing to go to the cross. He was willing to endure all of the abuse. He was willing to bear upon himself the, the, the guilt and sin of mankind. He was willing to, to endure the full wrath of God on the cross. He was willing to endure physical death. Why? In order to bring salvation to sinners. In order to bring glory to God. And so as we look here, uh, Christ did not protest because there was never a moment where he was not willing to endure the suffering. So he remained silent. Uh, and so we see here that, that um, you know, Christ understood his mission and speaking out in anger against those who were attacking him would have been counterproductive to what he knew he had to do. Uh, now, we understand that he could have stopped anything at any time. And that humans really have no authority over Christ. And so we can say, you know, who sent Christ to the cross? Some would say it was the Jews. Some would say it was the Romans. Some say both. But the reality is, is because of our sin, the Father sent the Son to the cross and the Son willingly went. I mean, we are the reason why Christ went to the cross, but the Father said, here's the plan of salvation. Here's the plan of redemption. If sinners are going to be saved, then you must be their substitute you must become one of them and live perfectly, fulfill every aspect of my law, go to the cross on their behalf, in their place, and die for them. Take upon yourself my wrath that is rightfully reserved for them. 
And when they look upon you on the cross, when their faith is in your work, in your person, in your power, in your provision, then they'll have salvation. And Jesus says, yeah, I'll do it. That's the plan. And that was the plan before the universe even was created. Because we understand that before this earth was founded, we were already called by God to be saved. He had already chosen people to be saved. He already knew people were going to sin, so they needed a Savior. The plan of salvation was already there before this universe even existed. And, and as I said, Christ certainly had the power to stop it, and humans had no authority to send him. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses uh, 17 and 18. This is uh, when Christ is speaking of himself as the good shepherd. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. And so when you want to talk about who sent Christ to the cross, well, Christ willingly went to the cross. And Isaiah prophesied that hundreds of years before. And as we look at this, Christ was very submissive in his suffering. He went to the cross, he was silent, and he was submissive to the plan of God. And so let's take a look at that submissive suffering as we transition here. We understand that we, we bear up under sorrows, we patiently endure this unjust suffering, and we don't put up a protest. Why? Because Christ remains silent, and so we are to remain silent. But here when we look at the submission, there's another aspect of it. Uh, verse 23, back in 1 Peter, chapter 2. Uh, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so not only did he not retaliate with his words or threaten others uh, when they were attacking him, but he entrusted himself, he submitted himself to the Father, that is the one who, who judges righteously. And, and so as we have this call to submission, to both human submission and divine submission, we understand that, yes, we are called to submit to human authority. Earlier in chapter 2, we see here it's to the civil authorities. That's verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors sent by him. Okay, so here we see it's God's will that we submit to the civil authorities. Here we see in verses 18 through 20, it's God's will that we submit to masters, whether they are good or whether they are unreasonable. If you jump forward to chapter 3, we'll see here that wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. So it's not just in the civil realm. It's not just in the domestic you know, uh, work realm. It's in the family realm as well. Our lives are marked by submission. And so when we look at this, it is what we were called to. We were called to submit for the glory of God. And so here we have this human submission and we have the divine submission. When we submit to God's will, when we submit to his plan, when we do it for the Lord's sake, as we see in chapter 2, verse 13, we understand it finds favor with God. Why? Because we are saying, I may not like it, but I will endure it. I will submit and I will not commit sin while I'm submitting. So we do all that we can to remain sinless, to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. That's chapter 2, verse 12. 
And so this submissive suffering, Christ's example here is that he entrusted himself to the Father, entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Again, look at Isaiah chapter 53. Chapter 53, verse 5, talks about uh, his submissive suffering. We understand here that as Peter is continuing and presenting Christ as a submissive sufferer, that Jesus was not simply to submit to the authority of those who were treating him unjustly, but more importantly, submitting to the plan of the Father. So look at chapter 53, verse 5 of Isaiah. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Uh, And so we see the unjust treatment. But look at verse 12 of Isaiah 53. This is talking about uh, you know, the, the servant suffering and what he's going to endure and that he willingly goes and offers himself as a guilt offering. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. It means there's going to be a reward after his suffering, suffering, glory after the suffering. By the knowledge of the righteous one, or by his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So when you look here at what Isaiah says, that he's going to suffer, he's going to do this on behalf of others, but there will be a reward for him, that, that, that he will see that blessing come after the suffering. When we go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, as Christ is being reviled, he doesn't revile in return, he doesn't utter threats, but what does he do? He entrusts himself to the one who judges rightly. Now, this is not so much the, the idea of, of handing himself over to the Father for, for protection. What this is, is this is, this is more the idea of, of delivering himself, his situation, for, for God to be the one who vindicates him. Not so much that he's, he's wanting to be protected from the assaults. We know that wasn't the case. He's not handing himself over in that sense um, so that he would be protected or judged by God, but that he is, as he is, is very aware of his mission. He's very aware of, of the plan of God. He knows that he's doing no wrong. Uh, in fact, there is a quote here. Let me share this with you. Uh, this comes uh, from uh, the commentary on First Peter by uh, Kelly. And it says he was, uh, Christ was, um, let me just begin from the beginning. It says, this describes Jesus handling himself, or handing himself over to the Father, not because he was concerned about his own fate, but that confident though he was of his righteousness, he preferred to leave his vindication to God rather than take action himself against his enemies. The idea was more of, Father, you know, this is unjust. You know that they revile me and I said nothing. You know I'm not going to retaliate. I I leave this situation to you. I'm not going to assault them. I'm not going to attack them. I'm not going to seek revenge. And so he understood that all of his suffering would be rewarded by the Father. So he entrusted himself to the Father. And the Father understood that the Son was completely submissive, completely sinless, obeying the plan of salvation. All of this to save sinners, and he would be rewarded. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 12. 
Remember, he was reviled by sinful man. He was, he, he was beaten and he suffered unjustly. But Revelation chapter 5, verse 12 shows us uh, the wonderful um, recognition and worship he receives. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. When Christ came as the suffering servant, he was humiliated, he was crucified, he died on the cross, and he rose again. So his earthly life was marked by grief and suffering. In fact, again, go back to Isaiah 53. We understand that that was already understood, that he would come and that he would be despised and forsaken by men. Look at verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. And so you look there and see that he was completely just ignored, overlooked, mistreated, despised. There was no honor that was paid to Christ here on earth by mankind. And so we see here that is remedied when you look at the wonderful blessings uh, that he receives, the, the position of authority and power and honor and majesty. And Revelation gives us a wonderful picture of that, uh, that Christ is uh, exalted and he is rewarded for his service, for his messianic mission. And so as we look here, all Christians who endure suffering, unjust suffering, and loss at the hands of sinful men will be honored and rewarded by their suffering Savior with riches beyond human comprehension. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 12. One uh, quick reference here, Romans 10, 12. Romans 10, 12 says this, For as there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. So we see there the riches that are coming for both Jewish and uh, Gentile believer. One more verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Ephesians 2, 7. We'll start in verse 4. But God, being rich in His mercy are being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so we see here that no matter how much uh, suffering we endure, no matter how difficult it is here on earth as we are striving to live for Christ, all those who belong to Christ will be rewarded with the riches of His grace. 
And so we see that uh, as Christ received that reward and that honor and blessing after his suffering was complete, we also have that promise to us that we will receive blessing and glory and honor and praise uh, when Christ is revealed to us, when we are called to glory and he takes his place on the uh, throne and uh, does away with all sin and sinners and creates the new heaven and the new earth. Everything that we, that we refer to as the eternal state, that glory that we are living in with God forever and ever with no possibility of sin ever appearing again. And we understand that that goes on for eternity and we are gonna be recipients of the wonderful riches of his grace and majesty and power. And so as we look at this, the, the submissive suffering, it, it always comes with a promise of blessing. And so we saw that pattern with Christ as well. Well, it is 1030. I'm going to hold off on these next two because uh, there's just too much there. In fact, even with this handout that I gave you this morning, two pages, this easily could have been five or six pages, but I wanted to kind of keep the continuity of, of a double-sided sheet. Uh, hang on to this because next week we're going to talk about the substitutionary suffering of Christ, uh, talking about the atonement of Christ and how his atoning work included suffering. And then we'll look at the purpose of Christ's suffering. So that will be the focus of next week's lesson. So hang on to this handout. So this will actually, part four, this will be like part 4A. Next week will be part 4B, or we can call it part 5, whatever you want to call it. But hang on to this handout. We will continue next week. Uh, and between now and then, I probably am going to expand this a little bit because there's a lot here that I, I trimmed for this morning, hoping to be done in one class session, but there's just no way. There's just too much good stuff to handle in 40 minutes. Uh, and so uh, let me close in a word of prayer. Hang on to this handout, and we'll use it next week as we complete our lesson on uh, the wonderful example of Christ as it uh, pertains to our suffering here on earth. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this time that we've had to look at your word and to understand uh, that your son uh, has suffered so much on our behalf. And we will continue that thought next week, Lord, but we thank you uh, that Peter is so clear uh, to demonstrate to us that we suffer because our Savior suffered and that we look to him and we look at his pattern, we look at his attitude, we look at his resolve, we look at his understanding of the purpose of suffering and see that, that when we are in situations of suffering, it shouldn't catch us off guard, we shouldn't think that you somehow are not aware of it or that it's a situation that's beyond your control, but that we are to submit to you and to submit to these situations as long as it's not calling us to commit sin. And Father, help us to be gracious and loving and patient and to look for biblical resolution if it's possible, Lord, and to offer that. Uh, but we know that not everyone will receive God's word as truth. And so we pray that we can do all that we can to be at peace with all men. But when there is no peace, Lord, and that we are under the assaults and the attacks and, and um, uh, the threats of others, that we will suffer well, following Christ's pattern and for the glory of your name. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.